0: You do have a Bible with you this morning. I want to invite you and encourage you to open it to John chapter 8. Uh, we're continuing our study of the gospel of John. We've been at this for several months already. Uh, today, we actually find ourselves right in the middle of a back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've spent a few weeks looking at this exchange already. Uh, all of John chapter 8 is taken up with this. It's taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And what we've already seen in this chapter, Jesus makes some, uh, some pretty audacious claims. So he says things like, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of world of life. He has said, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And this conflict, this tension that Jesus has with the religious leaders has been building All through the Gospel of John. Uh, We saw it, firstly, back in chapter 2, when Jesus entered into the temple area. And you remember that? He flipped over tables. He drove the money changers and the merchants out of the temple area. And what the religious leaders wanted to know is, what gives you the right, right? On what basis are you doing this? What is your authority for taking this kind of action? In John chapter 5, when Jesus uh, heals uh, a man and and, uh, he does so on the Sabbath, the religious leaders want to know what gives you the authority or or what gives you the right to do this on a Sabbath to violate one of our traditions, one of our laws. When Jesus teaches and he says things that are offensive to the religious leaders, they want to know who do you think you are. And that's the kind of tension that's been building throughout the Gospel of John, and that brings us to the passage we find ourselves in today. We're looking today at John chapter 8, verses 37 to 59. It's a lengthy passage, but I'm going to read it in its entirety for you. This is what it says. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. But because there is no truth in him... Where he li- when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, for there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as, the, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Abraham Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, I entitled this message, Who's Your Daddy? Uh, Someday... I will show you the list of all my rejected sermon titles from over the years. But I think Who's Your Daddy is a pretty good title for this passage. It actually functions on a couple of different levels to describe what is taking place here in John chapter 8. Now, if you're not up on modern colloquialisms, Who's Your Daddy is a slang expression to show dominance over someone. So it's common in sports. Uh, In sports, you might say, after you hit a game-winning three or you dunk on someone, you might say, who's your daddy? You're insinuating that that person is a mere child. They're not on your level. And this is part of what is happening in this exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. And you can hear that type of tone in some of the things that the religious leaders say to Jesus. So when he says that their plot to kill him is a reflection of the fact that they are not actually the children of Abraham, they're triggered and listen to verse 41, to what they say there. Verse 41 says, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God." So, what's the insinuation there? We were not born of sexual immorality. They're saying, Look, Jesus, we've heard this story about your virgin birth, but we don't buy it. Who's your daddy? Later in verse 48, we read something similar. There they say, The Jews answered, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, the Samaritans were the result of the Israelites intermarrying with the Assyrians. They were considered half-breeds. So when they say, you're a Samaritan, what they're saying is, look, we know you're the product of some kind of illegitimate relationship. Who's your daddy? But the question, who's your daddy, actually functions in a more straightforward way in this passage as well. The key verse to understanding what is happening in John chapter 8 is verse 38. And this is what that verse says. It says, I speak out of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now that verse is connected to what we looked at last week, where Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the people said, We're the children of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. Jesus' response to that defense is to say, Your actions reveal whose child you are. That's the idea on which this entire dialogue turns. Who's your daddy? So let me just highlight two main truths that we see in this passage connected to that idea. And the first truth is that even a rich spiritual heritage is no substitute for a genuine relationship with God. Now, having a rich spiritual heritage is a good thing, or at least it certainly can be a good thing. One of the most fascinating individuals in American history is Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards lived back in the 1700s. He is considered one of America's most influential thinkers and theologians. Today, he is mostly remembered for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But his impact actually went far beyond his preaching. Jonathan Edwards left quite a rich legacy. In 1900, a man by the name of A.E. Winship did a study of Edwards' descendants. And the results of that study became famous. Winship concluded that from that one single union of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Pierrepont came 13 college presidents. 65 professors, 100 lawyers, a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, among them three United States senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of the United States Treasury, And that doesn't even include the the abundance of pastors and missionaries who came from Edwards' lineage. But there's another statistic about the Edwards family that is rarely mentioned. In 1756, uh, Edwards' daughter Esther gave birth to a boy. And this is how she described her son shortly after his birth. Very sly and mischievous, Has more sprightliness than Sally, handsomer, but not so good tempered, very resolute, and requires a good governor to bring him to terms. Now, you could probably write those words about lots of children who've been born to lots of parents, but they were written about Aaron Burr, the man who took the life of Alexander Hamilton and then plotted to crown himself as the emperor of Mexico. Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. He studied theology at Princeton University. And the point is that while a good family lineage and a rich spiritual heritage can provide some benefits, they do not guarantee spiritual health. And this is what Jesus is driving at in his discussion with the religious leaders. I mean, their comeback to so much of what Jesus has said is, but we're the children of Abraham. Abraham. That's where we come from. We're his descendants. Now, I think this, this thread is worth exploring, both in this passage and in our lives today. And I want to drill down into this idea that even a rich spiritual heritage is no substitute for a genuine relationship with God by saying two additional things. The first one is that national or family identity is not enough. So this was a big part of the problem in the first century. The problem wasn't that they were proud of their heritage or their forefathers, but that they trusted in those things instead of trusting in a relationship with God themselves. John the Baptist confronted this same issue just before Jesus began his public ministry. In Matthew 3, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he said, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says to them, look, don't think you can begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. That was a bit of a mantra in the first century. Oh, it's okay for all of these people to repent. We don't need to. We're the children of Abraham. But you know this, this was not just a first century problem. It's fascinating just to study church history and see how this issue rears its head again and again over time. Now the early Christians were persecuted for their faith. Christians were often driven underground. Christianity was not recognized as an official tolerable religion until the Emperor Constantine issued a deed, an edict and decreed it to be so in 313 A.D. Now, what you see when you study church history is that from that point forward, many countries adopted Christianity as the official state religion. But that introduced a whole new set of problems. Many people born into countries that had adopted Christianity as the state religion simply assumed they were Christians. You would be baptized as a baby or christened as a baby, and that settled the matter. That's all that mattered. But one of the emphases of the Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s, along with an emphasis on the centrality of the Bible, was an emphasis on individual conversion. You weren't a Christian simply because you were born into a Christian country or into a Christian family. You became a Christian by placing your faith in the work of Jesus. And I think that same emphasis is needed today. It's, it's not enough to say, well, you know, I was born into a Christian family, and I've got Christian parents and Christian grandparents, or I went to a Christian school, or I went to such and such a church for so many years. What is required is that we individually place our faith in Jesus. You know, a couple of years back, I had the opportunity to attend a prayer breakfast in Vancouver. I'm not actually even sure who put the breakfast on, but there were hundreds of people in attendance—business leaders and politicians and pastors. I mean, our premier was there, the mayor of Vancouver was there, lo- lots of individuals were there. And there were a few things I really appreciated about this event. Uh, one was that no media was allowed to attend. That meant that, you know, there was no 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 one had to worry their quotes were going to show up on the evening news or on social media, that sort of thing. But it was interesting uh, to, to kind of watch the the, the program part of this uh, unfold. It was a bipartisan event, so you know different political parties took place or took part in it. The thing that struck me is that almost without exception, every time an individual would get up to the podium and begin to share, they would say something like, well, my name is so-and-so, and I'm you know, I'm the MLA for this region, or I'm the MP for this region, or I'm the city council member here. And then they would add something like, and you know what, my grandfather was actually uh, a minister in the United Church. Or they would make some point of religious connection in their their family. I mean, it wasn't something they held to, but their family, certainly there was a, a heritage there. Now, in one sense, I think we can all understand that. I mean, you're trying to make a connection with a religious audience. But here's the thing. None of that really matters. You might come from a long line of Christians there might be a background of Christian faith in your family or your family tree that stretches back for generations. You might be able to point to missionaries and pastors and just plain faithful Christian men and women in your family history. And that might have given you some advantages because of their example, because of kind of the legacy that was left. But listen, the Jews could say... Abraham is our father, and Jesus basically says, whoop de doo right? It's a bad paraphrase, but, that, but you get the idea, right? None of that matters. The point is that your national identity, your family identity, is not what counts. It's not enough to earn you favor with God. I'm closely connected to that is a second truth, which is that claiming to know God isn't enough. Listen again to verses 39 to 42. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So their first claim is, look, Abraham is our father. And when that doesn't sort of gain any traction, they say, we have one father, even God. And in both instances, Jesus' response is exactly the same. Look, you say Abraham is your father. Where's the family resemblance? You say God is your father. Where's the family resemblance? I mean, it's a pretty basic principle that children resemble their parents. Now, now some of that is physical. I mean, they might actually look like their parents. Some of it is subtler than that. They might just have the mannerisms and the characteristics of their parents. So, lots of you are teachers, And you've probably had that experience of meeting the parents of some of your students at, you know, a parent-teacher meeting or some other function like that. And very often, as you meet them, you could go, oh, you know what? I could could pick out the parents of that child right away because I can see it in their kids, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that kind of thing. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, if you claim God is your father. There ought to be some family resemblance. Jesus' point is that your words don't determine whose child you are, your actions do. So, who's your daddy? Paying lip service to God is a perpetual problem. It's been a problem throughout the generations. God said it this way through the prophet Isaiah. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. James says something similar in the New Testament when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the implied answer is no. Faith that consists of words alone and not works is not genuine faith. It's a cheap substitute. So these individuals could claim they were the children of Abraham. They could claim they were the children of God. But the fact that they were plotting to kill Jesus put the lie to all of that. So claiming to know God is not enough. And this takes us really to the second thing, second main thing we see in this passage, which is that what matters is how we respond to Jesus. This is actually a theme that runs all through the gospel of John. Let me take you all the way back to chapter 1, back to the prologue where John says this about Jesus. He says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So how do we become children of God? It's in the way we respond to Jesus. The response we make to Jesus determines our destiny. Let me just say that again. The response we make to Jesus determines our destiny. We either reject Jesus and show ourselves not to be part of the family of God, or we receive him and are given the right to become the children of God. So I want to flesh that out a little bit from what is said in our passage. I think there are two questions we ought to ask ourselves when it comes to how we respond to Jesus. The first question is, do we believe and obey his word? So verses 43 to 46 say this. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? See, there was something in the heart of Jesus' hearers, that would not allow them to accept his words or teaching. It wasn't a cognitive problem. It wasn't like they were saying, oh, look, we just can't understand what you're saying. It wasn't like they weren't smart enough. The problem was deeper than that. It was a heart problem. Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me, which one of you convicts me of sin? So here was their chance, right? All they had to do is say, well, look, stop right there. I mean, you sinned here and here and here. They didn't do that because they couldn't do that. So why is it that they did not believe? Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. And what the psalmist is describing is a de facto position, right? The fool doesn't believe God in his heart or believe in God in his heart, and therefore nothing you say or do will convince him otherwise. He's made up his mind already. And these leaders had made up their minds already about Jesus. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So why is it that some people don't believe? Well, the answer is not a lack of evidence. The answer is that in our natural state, we are hostile in mind to the wisdom of God. Paul says they cannot accept it or understand it. And when he says that, he doesn't mean they're intellectually unable to grasp the truth, the words that are saying. He means that the state of their heart, which is in rebellion against God will not allow them to accept the truth of the gospel. He's not saying the, God, the gospel is gibberish to them, but the gospel is foolishness to them. And I think we need to understand something in, in light of all this. I'm all for apologetics. I, I think it's important not only to know what you believe, but why you believe it. I think it's important to be able to give people credible answers to the questions that they might have about the Christian faith. That's important. That's important. But listen, anytime anyone responds to the message of the gospel, it's only because God has opened that person's eyes and ears. Left in our natural state, we would always resist the wisdom of God and see it as foolishness. So evangelism, therefore, is not an educational program. I just need to give you more information. No amount of seminars, classes, or studies will lead a person to faith whose mind is set in opposition to God. If you've already made your mind up, Nothing anyone says will convince you. Now, I do think it's important when we look at this dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders, not to make all of it negative. I mean, it's interesting to me that even in the midst of this tense back and forth, Jesus gives an invitation to them. Look at verse 51. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, that's a pretty amazing thing to say for a number of reasons, or a couple of reasons. One of them is that it's just amazing on the face of it. I mean, a parent might say to their child, Look, if you do what I tell you to do, things are going to go well for you. A teacher might say to their class, uh, to their students or their, their class, Look, it, these are my rules. These are the classroom rules. If you follow them, this is going to be a great year. But what Jesus says is, If you keep my word, you will never see death. I mean, that's amazing. But the second reason I think this is such an amazing statement is because it's in the middle of this hostile exchange that Jesus makes this offer. I mean, the Jews have just said, You're a Samaritan. You have a demon. And Jesus says to them, Look, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you will turn your heart toward me, if you will believe my word and keep it, there's still hope for you. That's amazing. You know, a few weeks back I shared about my newfound love for country music. One of my current favorite songs is a song called Don't Think Jesus by Morgan Wallen. In the first verse of that song, he describes the mess of his life, and then the chorus says, if, if I was him, I'd say to hell with you, ain't no helping you, find someone else to give heaven to. I'm telling you. I'd shame me, I'd blame me, I'd make me pay for my mistakes, but I don't think Jesus does it that way. He doesn't. Even to a group of people in rebellion against him, hostile to him, he offers them grace. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. The question for us then is, do we believe and keep his word? Jesus says, because I tell you you the truth, you do not believe me. So are we willing to accept the truth of what Jesus says about us and about God? So the first question is, do we believe and obey his word? The second question is, do we relate to him as he is? I've already said it, but Jesus makes some pretty audacious claims throughout the gospel of John, but maybe none more audacious than what he says here. Jesus' hearers don't take him up on his offer, right? Verses 52 and 53. As soon as he says that, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is such an important question they ask. Who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? Who are you? Now, you will sometimes hear arguments from liberal scholars who will say things like, well, we don't really know what Jesus' self-understanding was. I mean, was all this Messiah stuff just kind of foisted upon him? He seems to have a pretty clear sense of self-understanding here, doesn't he? Did he think he was greater than all the prophets who came before him? Yes. Who exactly did he think he was? Well, listen to his answer in verses 54 to 58. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What exactly does that mean? Well, many of you know this already, but the only way to really understand what Jesus is saying is to go back to the Old Testament, back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 tells the story of God appearing to Moses in the form of a burning bush. This bush or this tree was set ablaze. It was on fire, and yet it was not consumed. Moses sees it and says something like, well, that's interesting. God then speaks to him out of the bush and tells him to go to the Egyptian pharaoh and tell him to set the Israelites free from slavery. And we pick up the story in verse 13. Of Exodus three, It says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What is God's name? I am. In Hebrew, God's name consists of four consonants, Y-H-W-H. It is essentially just the verb to be, I am. It means that God is self-existent, and the Jews so revered this name of God that even when they would come across it in reading, they would not pronounce it. Instead, they would say Adonai, the Hebrew word for Lord or Master. Now, one thing you have probably picked up in the Gospel of John, or one thing you probably know about it, is that it is filled with I Am statements from Jesus. You'll often hear that there are seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John, and that is... Partly right. There are seven I am statements with a predicate, right? So in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 10, or in John 8, in this chapter, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. But in addition to those seven I am statements with a predicate, there are seven more without a predicate. Let me just draw your attention to a couple of them because they're easy to miss. John 6 records the story of Jesus walking on the water and coming near the boat his disciples were in. They were a little freaked out, as you can imagine. They weren't sure who or what this was. And then we read, but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And when it says, it is I, it's actually just that word, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. A couple of weeks back, we looked at this verse in John 8. Jesus said, I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, I am he is just the words, I, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. John 18 describes what happened when the mob came to arrest Jesus. It says, when Jesus said to them, I am he they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, why did they do that? If Jesus is just saying, oh, yeah, it's me. He's saying, I am. He's re- Who is Jesus? He is. I am. He is God himself. And the reason I take the time to point all of that out is because it reminds us that when we come to Jesus, we come to him as he is. We don't come to him as we wish he were or as we might imagine him to be. When Jesus says to this group, Before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't just claiming that he existed before Abraham. He was claiming to be God. And that is how the Jews understood it. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. So why was Jesus killed? I mean, what was it that led to his execution? Well, I like this summary or this paragraph from Kevin DeYoung. He says, among the many popular platitudes of our day, one that I hear often is that Jesus was killed for being so nice or so inclusive or he was crucified for welcoming the outcast. He was murdered for hanging out with prostitutes and sinners. He was killed for so courageously loving his enemies they couldn't take it anymore. Now, look, there's some truth. I mean, there was a lot of tension around the fact that Jesus hung out with sinners, spent time with them, offered forgiveness, all of that. But that's not the reason he was killed. And Kevin DeYoung goes on to say, sure, the people grumbled because he was a friend of sinners, but they killed him for claiming to be the son of God and the king of Israel. Yes, he upset their scruples about the Torah, but it was his identification that he himself was the Torah that drove them to murder. So when we think of Jesus here, when we think of his answer to the Jews' question, Who are you? His answer to that question is, I am God. This is why Jesus was put to death. And John tells us this several times in the gospel. So in chapter 5, he says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill them. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Or in John 10, it says, The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. See, the great offense of Jesus is not that he was a religious teacher. It's not that he healed people. It's not that he fed the 5,000. The great offense that Jesus caused was that he claimed to be God. God. And when we come to him, we have to understand who he is in order that we come to him the right way. So let's pray together. Father, we do want to just acknowledge your grace towards us, Lord. Even when we have resisted your truth, you come to us and you offer us eternal life. You tell us, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. God, we pray that we would come to you. As you are, we pray that we would be your children and that would be reflected in the way that we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name.